Hello and welcome to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great voice services on a resilient network. I'm joined today by Nathan Littlepage. Welcome, Nathan. Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So, uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say that I've coerced you into um, appearing on this show. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, Nathan uh, joined my team at Award Consulting um, about, I guess, nine months ago now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he didn't have a lot of choice, um, but I'm glad to be able to have him and I'm hopeful we'll have a, a, pretty, a pretty good discussion. Um, so, Nathan, you're unique um, among the team at Award Consulting in that you never actually worked at Metaswitch. So maybe to start, I'd love to um, just kind of explore your, your work history a little bit and to kick things off. How did you get into telecoms at all? Well, I, I would have to say it, it was being a child of the 70s and 80s. You know, there was some influence with the old CB radios, AM radios, and those type of things that were that were out there during those times. And the next step was, uh, you know, I joined the military and, and got into communications into the Signal Corps and and learned quite a bit that, that there was a broad range of different styles of communication, different types of, of uh, systems, whether it was AM or FM systems. Um, satellite, I mean, even down to Morse code. Uh, one of the big things that I was trained on was called a rat rig, radio teletype, which, you know, in the, in the early 90s was, was interesting to see this device that you had seen in old World War II movies pumping out the messages and everything like that. So, you know, essentially I look at it now and it's like, well, this is just a fancy way to do email. You know, that's essentially <laughs> yeah, what it was. The early version of text messaging. Exactly. And from there, um, it was one of those situations where a friend of mine kind of coerced me into this thing called the information superhighway. And I remember reading the uh, Bill Gates book back in mid nineties, I think. Yeah. And it was just like, I'm, I'm getting out of the service building. What is this information superhighway? So I think I got a prodigy account or something like that. And and knew enough about computers and, and that kind of stuff based on my military career to, to look underneath the hood and go, holy crap, I've been using this for the last eight years. So it, it was it was an interesting transition. And it, it, I think it just gave me the baseline of understanding that no matter the technology, um, the foundation of it all is, is pretty much the same. And it continues to be the same. It's just a matter of using different protocols or different ways to do it, whether it's, you know, whether it's radio waves, whether it's electrical waves or electrical pulses or frequencies or light waves, it's all, you know, it's all in that type of same scenario. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like uh, communications of all types has uh, definitely been you know, your path. Um, mm -hmm. And as exactly. part of that, we've ended up, ended up in, uh, in telecoms. Um, so if we fast forward a little bit, um, I, you know, I said you never worked at Metaswitch, which is true, but I think it's possible that you actually started working on a Metaswitch before I did. So um, you were at, um, I think, Big River Communications, um, who were yes. a fairly early adopter. Is that right? Yes, we were, we were a company, the Big River Communications. It had started off um, in the 80s as a long-distance provider called LDD. And they had hired me on to help with the internet. And during that time, everybody kind of cross-trained. So I learned a little bit about the voice side, which I, I had not dealt with, you know, the telephony side until that point. 
And then once, um, you know, I got a little bit familiar with that, the company um, owner decided to retire and got bought by Big River Communications, which at that point we decided to become a facilities-based CLEC. And we had shopped around and found this one switch provider and really thought it was great because it was a, it was a diversified system, something we had never seen before. And um, we, were, we were very keen on it because it, it allowed us to, to spread the system out because you know big, the big iron systems, everything had to come back to them. And so we were looking at this as, as a diversified system. Well, we found out that that company who no longer exists, um, obvious, for obvious reasons, really had sold us something that they had no rights to. And so there was a big discrepancy. And we had, had been in talks with Metaswitch at the same time. And I remember, and I think there's probably an article about this, and I don't remember the exact amount of weeks or days or whatever, but we literally made the call to Metaswitch to Bob Harvey and said, we're going with you. We need to transition this thing. This thing's falling on its face. We are looking bad, you know, we're losing customers. And I remember it was him and Stuart Warwick came in and got the system up, got the system commissioned, got us going. And I think it was, I, I literally think it was within a couple of, of, of weeks, maybe, maybe a week, maybe, you know, from, from the time we placed the call to the time we were active. And, and, and that was in, I think, 2003, 2004 time period. So Yes, we were one of the first early adopters of MetaSwitch, which was, you know, to have them come in and, and do that. It was just great service. And that's what spoiled me for the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, th there are a few stories of these kind of very super fast cutovers. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, MetaSwitch at that time, getting into the marketplace, trying to build a brand for themselves, doing that kind of thing certainly helps uh, spread, spread the word of mouth. Um, I... Yeah, uh, I th I'd like to think that I hold the record for the fastest ever cutover because I had to. There was a switch that got flooded in a hurricane. Um, oh. I think they placed the order on like I want to say Tuesday, um, because their switch was totally dead in the water. They placed the order on the Tuesday, which happened to be the last day of MetaSwitch's financial year. So the sales guy was <laughs> it arrived on the Wednesday. I showed up on the Thursday and then it was a long weekend. And by the following Monday, um, we had it in service, despite the fact that we didn't have any access to the, um, to the records from the old switch because the backup tapes were all destroyed and the whole, whole switch was down. So it was a, that yours is pretty quick, but I, I'm, I'm going to claim the record on that one, but it's, uh, I'll, I'll give you stories that like that. I'll give you that record. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah. So I joined MetaSwitch. Well, I was at MetaSwitch since, or data connection as it was since 2001 but yeah i joined MetaSwitch support in 2005 so i think you were you were already there and uh mm -hmm. yeah Stuart where i can sit flower and you know joe harrison and all these yes. were were there doing doing the support ahead of me and teaching me how to do it um so you had a you were in very good hands in those early days yes i mean it was great support i mean i was i was spoiled i'll give yep. it that yep thanks for that history um i i actually want to talk a little bit more today um you know, I want a slightly more technical uh, technical topic for our for our listeners. One of the many reasons that I was excited to you know have you join the team last summer um, is that you have this broader experience. It's not just voice. You have a you know a stronger experience in a variety of areas, including um, IP networking. Whereas mm -hmm. 
the rest of the team were users of IP networks. We certainly troubleshoot them regularly. We, we have a decent understanding of, of what's going on under the hood. And certainly we can see when there are packets lost and there's latency and there's jitter and all of these problems that um, emerge in a, in a voice network. But we're not really familiar with you know, building them or architecting them or I couldn't really tell you the difference between MPLS and BGP and <laughs> uh, other stuff like that, OSPF. These are, these are a series of letters that appear in a row, and I don't really know what they mean. Yeah. Um, but that's not true for you. So how did you gain your experience of the IP networking side of things um, and you know, get to a place where you're actually confident in all these things and can build them and design them in a way that, uh, that I personally can't? Well, I, it, it all started back, you know, going back to... Big River's initial design. We wanted to, we wanted to more or less couple our internet services as well as, you know, the voice over IP stuff. And we understood that we needed routers. We had learned from some experience by, you know, breakage, um, what some routers could do back then and what some could not. And um, we went with Juniper initially, and I went to Juniper's long line of courses and found it very interesting. I had been through like the Cisco um, boot camps and all that stuff, you know, back in the, in the early two thousands. And literally to me back then it was more or less, you're there for five days. This is how we do it. This is how we put it on our system, blah, blah, blah. And I really didn't learn anything, but whenever I went to Juniper, it was different. And it was, it was because you didn't touch a Juniper system for the first two days. It was all about teaching you the protocols that make everything happen. And that was an eye opener. And to this day, whenever I've got a new engineer or a new technician or somebody who comes online, I try to teach them what I call the fundamentals. You know, if you understand the fundamentals, it doesn't matter what system, whether it's Juniper, whether it's Cisco, whether it's Meraki, whether it's you know, even you know, Linux systems now, you have that ability to understand what the foundations are. And that's, that's the critical key is, is having a good foundation to just build off and understanding that, you know, everything is continually evolving. People find different creative ways to, to use protocols and, you know, BGP, like you said, has been around for a long, long time. It makes the internet go around. That's, that's essentially what it was designed for, but you know, it's, it's even evolved to more of a data, you know, for data centers and stuff like that for um, not only advertising IPs, but think about, you know, Mac addresses. It can do Mac addresses and which, you know, sets a, sets a foundation um, or a, for an underlay network for, you know, building or layering services. And, you know, I always think of it as like a, a skyscraper. You've got to have a good foundation and then you can just layer your different services or different you know, strategies on top of it and they can interact between each other um, or not, you know, it's, it is that independent and that flexible. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting hearing the, the contrast between the two training methodologies. It sounds like Cisco kind of gave you a recipe. It was like, follow these steps and you will yes. get a Cisco network the way we recommend. Whereas Juniper yes. was, we'll teach you, you know, teach man how to fish, et cetera, right? We'll, exactly. we'll, we'll teach you that what you're doing and how it works. And then you can decide how you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was like Cisco said, you know, you do this to make this happen, do this to make this happen. And, and, and you know, I know that's changed since that time, but it, to me, that was a revelation. But Juniper came in and was just like, okay, this is the, this is the routing protocols. These are, 
things. And then this is how we've implemented it, you know, and it's, it was, it was easy to pick up. And so I like doing that type of, of thing and teaching people, whether it's voice over IP, whether it's IP protocols, you know, IPv6, even too, um, it, it gives them the foundation to where they can go from one system to another and poke around and say, Oh yeah. I'm, yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever forget um, Mark Lindsay from ECG um, came in to Metaswitch and did a kind of IP networking fundamentals class, um, which, which I got the had the privilege of taking um, in, in the rest of Virginia office. And I remember sit, he had us all outside in the parking lot with pieces of string. And I think we were each representing a different machine and we were learning about Ethernet and you know MAC addresses mm-hmm. and ARPs and all that kind of stuff. And that class there was very much about, you know, what's it actually doing? What are the fundamentals, the OSI layer, the, all the bottom parts of the OSI layer? And that was hugely you know, helpful to me who at that time didn't really understand the difference, you know, between, yeah, IP and Ethernet and what is a subnet for and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, so it's, yeah, that kind of training is really, really helpful um, as a basis for what you go on to do. It is. Visuals, visuals would be a part of something is always a good training ex- uh, exercise as well. So um, you, know, you mentioned you know kind of BGP and how that allows you to create a, an underlay network and, and that kind of thing. Um, I'm wondering if, if we can talk a little bit more about you know networks for voice as opposed mm-hmm. to you know data networks. Um, and maybe just start out with a, a simple question: What makes a voice network or a network for voice over IP different from a regular data network that's just being used to transfer files or you know provides internet service? Well, I think it has to deal with what I would consider the network has to be tighter. In other words, your 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 ability to compensate for errors has to be tighter. Um, the reason for that is obviously RTP is a streaming protocol, uses UDP to where it's not retransmitting the packets. They're just streaming out there. If they get lost, you get anomalies. Um, with the internet protocol, with, with doing internet, it's mainly TCP and it's designed to have where packets can be lost because the TCP will retransmit it. If something doesn't go through, it'll retransmit. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to use the term derogatory, but a sloppy network can support a lot better, you know, internet services than a sloppy network supporting, um, voice um you've got to you've got to ensure you've got to you can't have the packet loss you can't have um you know the parameters to be outside of of what it is so i guess it's the difference in as you're describing that it's the difference in what the failure case looks like with yes. a with a data transfer if the network doesn't do a good job then it just transfers more slowly whereas yes. in a voice or video obviously um you know real-time communication it's experienced by the end user yeah Exactly. And, and that's the thing is that the user with an IP network who's, you know, who, who has less, you know, tight parameters, they're not going to experience the issues. Um, even with streaming video, I mean, that can be buffered. I mean, that's, that's one of the things. But when you've got real-time communications, that's a different story. You're going to see it. And, I, and I'm pretty sure everybody's experienced it, whether it's been on, you know, work from home situations like nowadays or even cellular stuff. I think... You know, that's one of the key things. I think if it hadn't been for the cellular networks and stuff like that, voice over IP really wouldn't have taken off because it allows a, an error factor for people to get adjusted to before getting onto a VoIP network, that, especially in the early days, because 
you know, doing voice over a cable network was, was something else. There was a, you know, the sun could come out and change the, the heat on the connectors of the cable plant and cause latency or cause resistance. And it was just, it was like, wow, I can't believe that. But you see it, it's, it's an everyday kind of thing. There are those kind of outside forces that can, can make your network really crappy. Yeah, it's, that's those phases and the, the, the way that wireless played into it is, I agree, is really fascinating. You know, the idea that because wireless was such an unexpected and powerful technology, mm-hmm. that people were willing to put up with degraded quality. Yes, exactly. And then once they'd become used to that degraded quality in the wireless network, they then weren't that surprised to have degraded quality in their wired network with voice over IP. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing the way that turned out. And had we not had the intermediate phase of the wireless, maybe voice over IP would never have you know, been acceptable or maybe it would have taken much, much longer. I think it would have taken longer. Yeah, I think it would have been harder. You know, and that was the thing is that... It, Again, everybody had to go in. Whenever you do voice, you've got to, you, and even video now with video, um, with, uh, you know, video, um, with Zoom or whatever, whatever, you know, you've got to have a tighter network. And, and that's the cool thing about the internet is that it has gotten tighter. It's not as um, latency prone as it used to be. Um, you know, going from shore to shore, you know, you can, you can expect 30 milliseconds, which is great because, you know, voice opera, voice over IP, uh, SIP, and all that can can operate in some pretty uh, pretty stringent stuff. I mean, I've I've done it over satellite, and I don't recommend it, but it 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 can be done. You know, and it sounds like the old long distance. If you're trying to talk in one system and talk in the other, you've got that whole delay, like a like the old school long distance back in the day. But you know, it, it can be done, and it just, it's just fascinates me that the evolution of it. And so, you know, that's, that's a key factor is, is moving with the, the evolution of the different types of networks and, and different protocols that can help you manage your, your network and, and keep you up to date on what's going on so that you're not just flying blind. Yep. Yep. I'm going to give you some questions from a couple of different angles. Um, let's start with the, the easier one, if, if you like. Um, and I appreciate we're on an audio medium here, so there's no opportunity to draw <laughs> diagrams or anything like that. Um, but if you were building a voice, an IP network for voice from scratch, um, in general terms at a relatively high level, how would you approach that to give you that you know, resilient, high quality, tight network that you've talked about? Uh, what are the kind of key building blocks or the key architectural decisions that you would make to give you that kind of network? Well, you know, again, I. I Starting off with the foundation, we've got to have a good foundation. And, you know, systematically, you know, people use routers and, and nowadays, I mean, some of the switches, I mean, today, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said routers are everywhere. Um, nowadays, I see Ethernet switches, um, because I'm going to use those as a foundation. And the Ethernet switches are now capable because of data centers, because of that high availability stuff. I mean, You've got to, they have so much throughput and line speed that they can do and so many um, versatile protocols that you can add to it that that would be my foundation. Now, depending on if it is a geographic kind of situation, you know, I would put them in a kind of ring and have them interconnect between each other. And these, 
these would not be like VLANs or layer two networking. I might be getting a little too deep, but they would be, they would be writable interfaces. They would be, um, the systems would talk to each other. And over likewise, IP, three yes, over IP, IPv6, IPv4, whatever we wanted to use. And then layer protocols on top of it using uh, open source, you know, OSPF to mitigate any type of link going down, it would automatically adjust. And then, like I said before, with BGP as a uh, IBGP or internal BGP uh, talking to all those systems, we can advertise the MAC addresses of the systems that are hanging off of this core. It's where everything knows where that device is, which makes a great foundation because then you can layer your services on it and you can have geo redundancy and have um, your voice setting up and then more or less standing on top of it as an overlay network. So um, forgive my ignorance here, but so it sounds like you're saying you'd have your basic, your underlay, if you like, network made up of these, these switches or routers um, communicating with IP and routing between mm-hmm. each other in a ring. But then you're talking about MAC addresses being advertised over the top of that um, using IBGP. Does that mean that you can have a single subnet that's spanning across this ring of routers, yes. even though it's a single subnet? Yes. You can, and then you can use, that's, that's, just, that's just, you know, the next layer is that you can use things like VXLAN with uh, e, uh, EVPN or MPLS, these, the, what I like to call 2.5 layer, you know, you're talking about the OSI level. This is like the 2.5 level of, of communication, of interconnecting things. And so with that, yes, you could have one subnet that literally covers the entire you know, service area or the partition that you've got on top of your foundation. So if you've got, let's say you've got part of your network in, let's say you've got three locations, you've got Dallas, we'll say Las Vegas, and let's say Chicago, and you've got them all connected uh, with your, your foundation network, your underlay network. And then you want to basically put systems on top of that that will talk to each other as if they're on the same subnet. You can do that. You can tie them all together across there. And if a link where you're routing between, um, let's say you've got redundant links between Chicago and Dallas and then from Dallas to Las Vegas and then from Las Vegas back to Dallas or back to Chicago, you can, if one of those links goes down, the, the service that's riding on top does not know. It, it is unaware of that. Your underlay network takes care of all that. So instantly it reroutes. It might take a little bit more on the latency, but it reroutes. And your system does not get a hiccup. It just, my packets are, are going the other way using, you know, VXLAN or, or MPLS or some protocol like that. Yeah, that sounds really powerful. So with the underlay overlay structure, that basically gives you, I guess, two sets of OSI layers, right? You've got the OSI layer mm-hmm. on the overlay network, which is distinct mm-hmm. from the OSI layer on the underlay network. And so yes. you get everything from scratch on the overlay network built upon a resilient underlay network that it can't even see, if you like. Right. And that's that's the other thing is that the underlay network can be comprised of totally private IP address space that is not reachable from the in open internet. So your underlay, your foundation cannot be subject to um, attacks, you know, unless they, unless they breach something that's on your network and, and has access to that, you know, I'm not going to say it's, it's foolproof, but it, it gives you that resiliency of not having your underlay be attacked. And I think that's one of the key things that people 
And, and networks evolve. And I understand, you know, being in, haven't been in the seat, I know it's like, you know, your, your, your leadership says, we're going to do this. And then the next week, you're going to do, we're going to do this. And so you're ripping out one thing, you're putting something else in, you're trying to make it work and trying not to influence customers and, and make it as seamless as possible. As your boss, by the way, I'm getting the sense here that you don't have a high opinion of leadership in the company. Is that is that true? No, 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 no. I don't have that. I'm just I'm just speaking hypothetically from other people. Some some other people. Okay. Yes, some other people. Yes, yes. But yeah, I mean, with with having a foundation like that, you can make adjustments then to compensate for that type of scenario. You know, you could build something. You could have it sitting there. You could have it active and live, and then build another. Another one that, you know, you talk about OSI level, separate layers, but you can, you can think of that as being vertical, but you could also think of it being horizontal too. You could have different services or different networks riding on top of this foundation using their own OSI level, level of uh, communication. So if you wanted to build another network, you build it alongside there and then you do a migration path. So it gives you a lot of flexibility. And a lot of this stuff has been more or less used in data centers. So it's proven out. And data centers are using it. And because, you know, the, the central office is, is becoming a data center now. I mean, that's, that's something you can't deny. Yeah. Yep. You know, even with MetaSwitch's products going, you know, into VM states and all that kind of stuff, you know, that allows you for, you know, diversity um, at a scalable level that, you know, we haven't seen in years yep. prior. Yeah, I think just as an aside, one of the things I really liked about Metaswitch from an architectural point of view was that they were always clear that they were a software company. Um, and in the early days, certainly we were selling appliances. We were selling a physical box that did stuff for you. Right. But Metaswitch wasn't making the hardware. We had very good partners who were making the hardware for us. Um, but fundamentally, it was just software. That was the core of what Metaswitch was doing, which helped really did help them as the you know network evolved to move to, you know, running on commodity servers and then to move to running you know virtually um i think they were set up really well compared to some of their competitors for that because at the core they were always a software company yeah and, and they had the foresight really well i'd like to say they had the foresight to say i want to continue on being a software company you know i look i think of it as, as a comparison to like netflix netflix wanted to become a streaming media company but the technology wasn't there so what did they do they built it off of dvd rooms you know, they use a different technology that really wasn't their own to help build their clientele and then help launch it into the next whenever the technology of Internet had, had evolved to where they could do the services that they wanted. Yeah, there are so many, you know, tech startups that are right, but at the wrong time and they fail. Exactly. And Netflix yeah. was right, but at the wrong time, but they knew that and they had gave an on-ramp so that they could yes. wait for the right time. And that was very, very smart of them. So, yeah. Um, okay, so I want to switch things around a little bit. So I gave you the nice, but probably in most cases, unrealistic scenario where you're building a greenfield network uh, from scratch, which doesn't happen that much. Um, as we look at networks that are really in use that have evolved in a less planned way, um, what are the what are some of the common issues you see, or the the common yeah the common problems that people are experiencing, which could relatively easily be addressed um, if they you know, as they look at their voice networks and try to improve them, try to make them more resilient, um, a little bit tighter, a little bit faster, uh, more reliable. I think, I think at a baseline aspect, you need to understand what you have. 
Um, whether that is auditing your entire systems and understanding what does this box over here do that's been sitting here since 2004, you know, to, to understanding your, you know, it, it's, it starts with an inventory of your systems, um, whether that is the actual operating systems, whether that is the physical devices, whether that is the network, it starts with that. Even, even down in some cases, down to the physical interfaces and physical infrastructure that you have. Um, I think that is a key uh, beginning point because once you've got the inventory, you can understand where things might be concerning. I know in the previous company I was with before starting on here, that was one of the things that I was always doing was, you know, looking at the network as a whole and saying, okay, where's the worst case scenario? Where, where, are, gonna, where, where are we going to get hit even if it is a fluke that's going to cause us the most pain? And then designing around that, you know, find your your critical points that are gonna that cause you one to not sleep at night, and two, the you know, sitting in front of investors or whoever and explaining what's going on. Yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be explaining to no. anybody what happened. Yeah, no, you do not want to be in the big conference room explaining what happened and why you were, you know, doing that. So even when yeah. you three months before said, hey, everything's fine. Um, yeah, I, I like, um, I've written about this a little bit and can we talk about it as well internally, the duality of looking at a network or a routing logic or mm -hmm. whatever it might be from a theoretical exactly. point of view. So doing the yes. audit you're talking about and saying, how should it work? What do all these pieces do? How do we think it's put together? And that is critically important. But then also you've got to layer that on with the, the kind of, test by fire, as I wrote in a recent yes. article, the, the kind of black box approach, which says, imagine I don't know anything about what's inside. Let's do stuff to it and see what happens and make sure yeah. it works as we expect. And those two things combined are really what allows you to ensure that you have the quality network that you, that you hope. Yeah. I mean, don't be afraid to do maintenance windows where, and then this is where you do, you do a mock. You, you basically outline based on your inventory, based on the way you think things are going to happen. And create a mod and you go in and you fail something over. Um, you target a router, you target, you know, maybe half the switch, you know, you do that systematically, whether it is, uh, you know, once a year on certain devices, once a quarter on certain devices, um, because there are devices out there and I've seen it happen. They, they run fine. They're running fine on the A processor and, as soon as you switch to B, you know what? <laughs> no. And then trying to get it back to A, because A just died, you know, you're like scrambling. And so, you know, like you just pointed out, doing that kind of systematic, you know, that's part of the operations thing is, is operating these networks is, is another key factor. You can have the best network and all that kind of stuff. You can have the best infrastructure. You can have the best customers. But if you don't manage it, you don't have a good team that can understand how to react to these situations. And that's another part of the whole maintenance is teaching your team how to react to these things, especially when they go off the rail, you know, how to escalate, how to get the right people in at the right time, you know, not beating down everybody's door whenever it's, it's something that's, you know, not that critical, what you think it is, you know, having people understand the levels of, 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 uh, alerts and stuff is, is, is good too. So yep. those are two parts is, is, is the inventory. And then, like you said, knocking it down, figuring out what it is. And then that gives you a good idea where you need to progress, 
where you need to go, where you need to set up, you know, and become, you know, at that point where you get to it. And then what it is, it becomes a nasty cycle where, you know, like the DevOps cycle, you, you create it, you, you, you know, deploy it, you watch it, and then you go back again and, and start a process all over. Um, there are, you know, that's, that's the way you keep on top of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally believe in and agree with that, that constant cycle of improvement. You, mm-hmm. yeah, you look at what you've got, you maybe test it a little bit, push it a little bit, see how it can be improved, feed that improvement back in and then do it over and you'll continually get better. Um, yeah. I liked what you were saying about the people knowing what to do um, in those scenarios. I remember having a, a weird thought, probably maybe like three or four years after I started a Metaswitch support where I was, I was a manager and I was looking at the, the new people on the team and I was like, these guys don't know what to do in a crisis because the switch is too stable now. Back in the early <laughs> days when I started, it used to fall over, not all the time, but more regularly. And we, we all knew what to do if, if you had an outage. And these new folks, the, the system is just working and they don't know what to do. How do we train them what to do? You know, um, We never did figure that out. I, I felt that... Uh, you know, knocking over a customer switch just to see what would happen was probably not recommended. But uh, that's where you have a, that's where you have a training lab. You know, you break stuff and you train them in the lab. And so that's what you do that one. Yeah, I, I should I have remember, done more role playing. You know, yeah, I, I could play the customer who's shouting at you, or you know, the board member who suddenly jumps on the call and is like, "Why is yeah. this working?" You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, um, cool. I, I don't want to keep us going forever, but. I actually had one very specific thing that we've seen a couple of times um, in the last year or so um, with clients that might be a useful takeaway for people. Um, switch stacks. I hate them. Yeah. Um, so, so first off, for, for idiots like me, what is a switch stack? So a switch stack is a common practice usually used at an access layer level. Um, what it does is it, it, you'll have a device or multiple devices that have what are called stacking cables on the back of the system. And what it allows them to do is become one system. Um, so you log into the, the management port on the system that is really the, we'll say controller for a better term, the one that's in charge of the stack. And it, the stack could be, you know, one or two devices. It could be I mean, I think I've seen stacks up to eight devices. It depends on the, the technology of the of the of the, uh, of the the people making it. But and so this is appealing, as I understand it. This is appealing because, um, say, it's a Cisco switch mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, you can take four of these and stack yes. them all together, treat them as one device from a management point of view. But really, you've got four, um, and so that gives you more capacity, and surely it gives you redundancy because you've got four of them. Um, for right. devices. That, that's the theory. That's why people are that's, like this. Yeah, that, and that's a theory. And, and it's a great for an access layer, like if you were, you had IP phones or like that. But for critical infrastructure, I do not, I do not condone them. And the reason for that is if you've got one stack and you've got, let's say you've got your switch connected to the stack and, and you've done your due diligence, you've got them on different ports on different systems. The problem with these systems are is that they are still one system. If you go to uh, upgrade the, uh, the operating system on them, guess what happens? It's down the whole system. So you lose that. And then there's been, there's been you know, numerous bugs and all that kind of stuff about the actual stack protocol, this other proprietary protocol that you have no governance over crashing and causing the systems to go down. So you know, that's where I like using more high-end 
um, uh, switches in individual states and, and using some of the same kind of technology you would use or protocols or configurations that you would use for like an underlay network in those type of, of systems to where you have an A and a B. And if A goes down, B is still there and your, your system is still life, whether it's, you know, your VMware systems, whether it's, you know, your, your switch systems, whether it's your routing, what, whatever it is, you got to remember, this is a core system and every business needs to understand that nowadays you are an IT business with a wrapper around you of what you do. And that's, yep. that's what you are. The voice and of so, the application layer. Yes, exactly. And so the stacks are great. Uh, for you know aggregating systems and stuff like that that are that are not requiring high high availability, but in a core network, I would I would I would not use them. Yeah, yep, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, yeah, I think if you're if you're listening to this, this is something to be aware of. In your core network, a stack is a great way to give you greater capacity, but it does not create redundancy or resilience. You need to view it as a single switch. So if you have a core network, you need to have two redundant switches so that you've got multiple links, et cetera, um, and so that you can cope with the failure of any one of these because occasionally these things may fail or they need a, may need a firmware upgrade and that will you know, potentially take it out of service. So stacking is for capacity, not for redundancy. So Exactly. All right. Cool. Well, um, we could probably talk for hours more about various aspects of IP network design and the like, um, but I think we should wrap that for today. So, um, Nathan, it's been a delight to talk to you. Um, certainly, I, I see a need among our clients for um, you know for our help in this kind of area. I know you know mm -hmm. traditionally we focus solely on you know providing. You know, technical services around the meta switch, but we started to do more work in a slightly broader way. I'm um, including some IP network uh, implementation work and troubleshooting and that kind of thing. And so it's great for me to have you as part of the team so that we can you know, give our clients what they need um, and gradually broaden that range of services. So yeah, um, I'm excited to have you on the team. I'm pleased that you were able to join me today. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking. And if you enjoyed uh, this discussion, then please uh, join us again next time um, for our next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much.